You can tell that our speaker is enormously popular. <laughs> Come on up. Is it all set up? Yeah. It's ready. They just they're going to unmute it as soon as you're ready to start. Okay. So we have a, something a little different. General Petraeus uh, is one of our most distinguished alumni. He is also extremely uh, well-trained. Uh, Ann Corwin emails him wherever he is, and he responds instantly. He knows where his loyalties lie. And I will tell you personally that in my uh, emails with him, uh, he often emails me about uh, various things, including uh, I emailed him. He emailed me back. I think it was 4 in the morning, and he was in the Battle of Fallujah. But somehow he managed to respond. One of the things he emails me about is the extraordinary young men and women who work under him. One of those soldiers is Captain Gene Hull, who partly as a result of the wonderful recommendations he sent us, is now a first-year MPA student. Captain Hull, who says she very much enjoys being called Jean for a while uh, in her civilian status, uh, will introduce General Petraeus. Good afternoon. Ladies and gentlemen, the speaker for this session is Lieutenant General David H. Petraeus. General Petraeus was a distinguished graduate of the United States Military Academy class of 1974, who later attended the Woodrow Wilson School. He earned his MPA in 1985 and a PhD in 1987. His education at this institution served him well in his subsequent assignments as aide to the Chief of Staff of the Army, Special Assistant to NATO's Supreme Allied Command, and Executive Officer for the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, as well as Chief of Operations for the UN Force in Haiti, and commands of a battalion in the 101st Airborne Division, and a brigade in the 82nd Airborne Division. His education served him particularly well after 9-11. In late 2001, in Bosnia, he helped form and later chaired the first joint and interagency task force for combating terrorism. In June of 2002, he took command of the 101st Airborne Division and, in March of 2003, led that division in battle during the invasion of Iraq. The 101st subsequently set the standard for the calculated risk-taking and intellect necessary for rebuilding that country in Mosul and northern Iraq. General Petraeus' most recent assignment involved 18 months of leading the Multinational Security Transition Command, Iraq, and the NATO training mission, Iraq. Both of these institutions were responsible for helping Iraq to rebuild its security forces. General Petraeus' awards include the Defense Distinguished Service Medal, the Bronze Star for Valor, and the Combat Action Badge. Most recently, he was the first recipient since the liberation of Iraq of the Gold Award of the Iraqi Order of the Date Palm. Ladies and gentlemen, Lieutenant General David H. Petraeus.
and I'm still trying to figure out how to wear the Iraqi Order of the Date Palm. Uh, <laughs> thanks for that kind introduction, Gene. Um, thanks for the typically great research, and more importantly, thanks for all that you've done for our country. Uh, as was mentioned, in addition to being a first-year Woodrow Wilson graduate uh, student, Jean Hull is a military intelligence captain in the U.S. Army, and she spent nearly three of the past four years deployed, uh, nine months in Bosnia, followed by six months in the States, a year in Iraq with the 101st Airborne Division, not entirely coincidental, another short break, and then another year in Iraq. And I should add that she did great work uh, in each of those assignments, and having been her boss in the last one, it was quickly obvious to me where she needed to go to graduate school. And so I'm delighted, <laughs> I'm delighted to see her here and enjoying the best interdisciplinary graduate school experience available in America today. <laughs> On that note, it is a great pleasure to be back at Princeton. Actually, it's a great pleasure to be home uh, to help celebrate the Woodrow Wilson School's 75th anniversary and to be able to share a few thoughts with you all today. And I'm very appreciative that so many of you chose this session over today's football game. And <laughs> There is a football game today. And that the Yankee fans here could come out of mourning today and join us as well. <laughs> there were a few folks that went to school in Cambridge, I know, once or twice. Before I begin, speaking of that, I should uh, offer some additional thanks. First, to Anne-Marie Slaughter uh, for her energetic and visionary leadership of this wonderful institution, which last night I think was described as the jewel in the crown of your great university, Madam President, or at least one of them. Uh, and I think I can speak for all here in saying, Anne-Marie, how much we appreciate and applaud what you're doing for the Woodrow Wilson School and the way in which you're doing it. Thank you. Our alma mater is very fortunate to have you at its helm as it celebrates its 75th anniversary. Uh, and last night I was delighted to hear her described as someone who it's hard to say no to. And I can attest to that. Uh, I also want to note that having spent 31 years myself trying to earn a similar, similar reputation, I also respect it. Uh, <laughs> thanks also to the faculty and staff members in attendance today, particularly to my dissertation advisor and longtime mentor, Professor Dick Ullman. But many others here as well. Jim Trussell came in. Uh, there are others. Uh, what makes the Woodrow Wilson School special, as you know, the strength of this institution has always been professors who place great importance on teaching and advising their students often at the expense of their own research, writing, or other pursuits, and staff members who truly go out of their way to help students, too. And it's a pleasure to see so many members of the faculty and staff in the auditorium today. And again, I'd ask that we appropriately recognize them. Senator, thank you for joining us. I think it's an incredible statement about this great institution, that there are senators, congressmen, governors, others in the audience, and but today they are alumni, alumni of this institution and, and happy just to take their place uh, in that role. Madam President, I do want to thank you uh, not just for being here, uh, but again for your leadership uh, of this great university and for again taking such great care uh, of this wonderful school. 
Finally, I think it would be very appropriate if we recognized by name several longtime heroes of this great school, institutions within the institution, if they'll let me get away with that phrase, for all that they've done for so many of us over the years and for what they've done most recently to help pull together the 75th anniversary celebration. And they are, of course, Ruth Miller and Ann DeMarchi Corwin, wherever they are. Ruth, I missed the retirement piece, you know, so for, 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 to me, you've always still been at it, and uh, Ann DeMarchi is still Ann DeMarchi. Somebody told me the Corwin was added about 18 years ago, but I'm sorry, Ann, it's still hard to make adjustments. Um, well, I should be up front with you today and, uh, and share that when I told my wife that my free lunch at Woody Woo on the 1st of October was no longer free, that I've been dragooned into making remarks by that woman to whom it's impossible to say no, she responded by asking, did you ever think when you were a student there that you'd make a keynote speech at the Woodrow Wilson School? And of course, I confessed that I hadn't. In truth, returning to Princeton as a speaker was the farthest thing from my mind was when studying here. In fact, I'd rather not share what was on my mind as I, <laughs> as I struggled through Professor Bob Willig's 511C Advanced Microeconomics, having started the course not remembering whether supply and demand curves went up or down. But knowing that I'd better sort it out pretty quickly, and I, by the way, I can see from the audience, and actually I, had, I ran with a couple of your graduate students yesterday and this morning who have experienced similar phenomenon, so he is still at it, and that is very reassuring to an old grad. In any event, having spent a good bit of time squirming in various seats in Princeton buildings, it's a distinct pleasure to be standing at the front of the auditorium rather than sitting in it. Now, as I was driving up from Virginia yesterday, just this one last story, and I'll get to it, I was reminded uh, that the current graduate classes of the Woodrow Wilson School have a number of military officers. And I, by the way, you've even been infiltrated by the Navy, so we need to talk about your vetting process, and I'm an expert on that. Uh, but recalling that and recalling Princeton's best-in-the-nation ROTC unit uh, brought to mind a story I heard recently that took place in a barbershop a bit south of here, one particularly frequented by members of the various armed forces uh, in the area. And it goes like this. A Marine sergeant walked into the shop. What will you have, asked the barber. A good high and tight, responded the Marine, white wall sides and a half inch on top. So the barber gave him a good close high and tight. How much do I owe you, asked the Marine. Nothing, responded the barber. You're serving our country in a time of war, and I couldn't possibly take your money. So the Marine drew himself up to full attention, saluted, barked Semper Fi, walked out to his new red pickup truck with Marine Globe and anchor decal on the back window, and drove away. And the next day on the steps of his shop, when he arrived in the morning, the barber found a new red Marine PT shirt and a Marine coin. In the middle of that afternoon, an Air Force pilot sauntered in. What'll you have, asked the barber. A very light trim, responded the pilot. <laughs> Just a bit off the sides, nothing off the top, and please don't touch the ponytail. <laughs> and, and take your time. I've already flown my eight hours this month, and the officer's club doesn't open for another two hours. <laughs> so the barber, some of you know these Air Force officers. So the barber gave him a nice leisurely haircut, not touching the ponytail, and once again, when asked how much, replied, you're serving our country, I couldn't possibly accept your money. The Air Force officer responded, aim high, put on his sunglasses, got into his 2006 dark blue Corvette with silver pilot's wings on the front license plate, 
and roared away. And the next day on the steps of his shop, the barber found a pair of aviator sunglasses and a scarf from the pilot squadron. Early that afternoon, an Army captain strode briskly into the shop, a blackberry in his hand, his PA-501 notes in the other, and a pager on his belt. I need a good soldierly haircut, said the captain to the barber, but please make it quick. I am a first-year graduate student at the Woodrow Wilson School, and I am a very busy guy. With a seminar, a workout, a phone call with my former boss in Baghdad, and a meeting with Dean Slaughter still to go today. So the barber gave him a quick army haircut, and once again, when asked how much, the barber replied, you're serving our country, I couldn't possibly take your money, etc., etc." So the captain saluted him, said air assault, strode out to his six-year-old Plymouth Voyager, <laughs> and sped back to the campus. And the next morning, on the steps of his shop, the barber found waiting for him five more army captains. <laughs> What I wanted to provide this morning uh, in seriousness is an overview of the effort to help Iraq develop its security forces. Uh, this effort is obviously of great importance to the way ahead in Iraq as we help that country complete its political process, redevelop, revitalize, and work to transition the security burdens to Iraqi forces. And what I wanted to do today is to give you essentially the same briefing that we give to visiting congressional delegations with a couple of slight modifications where we have uh, classified slides for them. And I see the first slide is up. We have mastered the technology. And I will now take up the tool of the modern general in combat, which is a laser pointer, and, uh, and go through this. Uh, as Gene mentioned, uh, for the past, really the past 18 months, I've been involved in this since I was brought back on short notice in April of uh, 2004, having gone home with the 101st in uh, late February of that year to assess why the Iraqi security forces had uh, struggled enormously uh, in the challenges of early April 2004. Uh, I then I stayed for several weeks, uh, gave an assessment. We made some changes right away, actually, and then I came back in early June after giving up command of the division uh, and stood up an organization called the Multinational Security Transition Command Iraq, uh, whose symbol is right here, a pretty substantial organization, eventually about 2,000 staff members, including 750 uh, international police uh, advisors and trainers, uh, an enormous budget, thanks to the senator and his colleagues and the other members of Congress, over the course of the two and a half years, about a $12 billion program which included some uh, Iraqi oil profit money. It was not all U.S. Uh, by any means. Uh, over the course of time, NATO became involved, and I then became the first commander as well of the NATO training mission Iraq. That is over here, uh, much smaller, but, but still very effective. And one of the myths I wanted to dispel is that NATO, frankly, is, is not contributing a great deal over there because, in fact, it is in its lane, and it has been very helpful. I'd point out, by the way, a picture on the front. There's also a little bit of a misperception that there's no armored forces on the Iraqi side. There is, in fact, an entire brigade, a tank battalion, two mechanized battalions, with three more heavy battalions that are in training now that will be ready by the mid-October referendum. Uh, there's also a police mechanized uh, brigade, which, in fact, has been the unit responsible for policing Route Irish, that's the, the notorious route between the embassy and the airport, which has been actually quite violence-free uh, since they took it over. Uh, you see a picture here. This is the
Minister of Interior, a Shia uh, Iraqi from originally the Badr Corps, by the way, and then his defense counterpart, uh, who is a Sunni Arab, uh, impeccable Sunni credentials, a tribe from Anbar province, of course, the most troublesome province in terms of the insurgency. Both of them, uh, who took office probably now about, I guess, four or five months ago, uh, have proven to be quite courageous leaders. They are honest, which is exceptionally important, particularly in the defense ministry where there were, in fact, some problems, uh, and, and have really gone forward forthrightly. And they also, for what it's worth, respect human rights and have worked hard in a culture that was not known for uh, its, its treatment of detainees, frankly, uh, to, to start to impart uh, the kind of treatment that uh, we would expect. Next slide. Uh, these were our missions. Um, and we underscored the word help here. We underlined it. We believed what Lawrence said uh, about not trying to do too much with your own hands, about helping the man, uh, teaching him to fish rather than giving him a fish. Uh, this proved very, very true, uh, as true as it was when Lawrence was uh, in, in the Middle East. Uh, in fact, I have to tell you, by the way, in fact, in the, some really tough days back in November when intimidation was a huge problem uh, and they worked their way through that, I used to read Lawrence at night and say, see, he had the same kind of challenge as you have. Um, but we took this to heart uh, when we were there with the 101st as well, and we did find, in fact, that Iraq has human capital. It has a reasonably educated middle class still. Uh, it has entrepreneurial spirit, and if you can help them, they can often take projects on themselves. And when I talk about branch schools, the key with re when reestablishing, for example, the engineer school, the medical program, the infantry school, and so forth, was to find the right Iraqi leader, give him some assistance, and turn him loose. And in fact, they succeeded uh, when we did that. We did help them organize. Uh, they are now doing their own recruiting and vetting, which has much improved over the course of the past six months. Uh, there are still challenges in the ranks uh, as a result of, of, of previous actions in that regard, but they are gradually policing that up. Uh, but this includes, I, I want to give you some sense of the magnitude and the scope of this. This includes even literally just helping them design the units, figuring out every piece of equipment, every individual, what their rank should be, their skill set, their training, and all the rest of that. So this is helping them design their battalions, brigades, divisions, training battalions, uh, base support units, logistical elements, truck units, armor units, and on and on, and an Air Force, Navy, all the police elements. You'll see the whole uh, list of them later. Uh, but an enormous task in itself. The equipping mission, huge. I can't state how big this is. In fact, I don't, well, I don't know, we probably won't try to experiment with that today. I'll show you the equipment slide in a moment. Uh, but you'll see on there, for example, well over 210,000 sets of body armor alone distributed to Iraqi forces over the course of the last year. Some of that which they purchased, but the bulk of that with that money that I talked about. A colossal effort uh, that had real challenges for the first six months I was, th I was there. We've worked through that again as well, and that has generally gone quite well recently. The training effort, well, you'd think, well, gosh, they had a very large military. Surely they know how to train. Actually, they did not uh, in many, many different areas. And, uh, and one story will, will provide a good example of that. I was out at the big training, one of the big training bases that we had helped them rebuild, and the head of their mechanized division grabbed me and hugged me and said, General, thanks so much for teaching us this new revolutionary training concept. And I said, well, gosh, I don't see anything. There were some guys doing basic marksmanship. There were some others that were doing maintenance and some drills. And I said, well, what do you mean, General? And he said, well, this idea of shooting live ammunition, this is really something. 
I said, well, what did you used to do? He said, well, we only got about three rounds a year. And, uh, and, it, and, it, and it, for me, the light went on about why they employed what we used to call the inshallah school of shooting, which is you put the weapon up over your head, you pull the trigger until the magazine runs dry, and inshallah, if God wills it, it hits the target. I, I, as Dave Barry says, I'm not making this up. Uh, this, and this is the type of cultural uh, appreciation that we went through constantly uh, and that over time we, we learned to grapple with. But that is the, the type of training assistance that we have provided. By the way, they now do all their own basic training. They're running some of the police academies themselves already. Uh, and they're doing their non-commissioned officer training. They just, they have a military academy that they're running with, I think it's now up to five or six hundred students. Uh, and even the staff college has opened on the 25th of September. Uh, the rebuilding effort is colossal. We have helped Iraq rebuild hundreds of border forts, hundreds of police stations, uh, dozens of enormous army bases, uh, with containment areas the size of Fort Dix or, say, Fort Drum. We've rebuilt five Fort Drums. Uh, if anyone knows the size of Fort Drum, New York. Uh, these are enormous efforts. They took time. They took a year in some cases to rebuild. There are a couple that hold entire divisions, you know, 10,000 soldiers. Uh, but they are rebuilt now, and they do now have the training facilities, the bases. We're now helping them rebuild a depot system with warehouses and transportation regiments and all the rest of that. And then the mentoring piece is particularly important. And anybody that heard General Casey this past week on Capitol Hill heard him emphasize and reemphasize the importance of what he calls and we call transition teams, but which you may remember as advisor teams. These are 10-man elements that are with each battalion, uh, brigade, and division. They're actually 10-person because we have women with some of the transportation units and the others, uh, and they have been enormously important. They are with, there are thousands probably of these. I haven't done the math. But every single one of the over 115 battalions that are in the fight right now, for example, police and Army combat only, uh, have the, one of these 10-man teams. Each of the 10 divisional headquarters has a 10-man team. Each of the dozens of brigades has one. Uh, we have multi, uh, other training teams that go out and about. Uh, they're with their special ops forces and, and so on. Huge effort, paying enormous dividends. And this is one of their finest battalion commanders here with his uh, transition team uh, chief, uh, and I think that was in fact outside Fallujah, uh, and that's where they were on doing that. Next slide. Um, here's a bottom line that I would offer to you, uh, and I'll have another bottom, bottom line at the very end, but the bottom line up front is that they are very much in the fight. There is absolutely no question about it, and, and, and sadly, one bit of evidence of that is the number of casualties they have taken, which is at least twice as many killed in action uh, over the past, say, six to eight months. Uh, just in terms of metrics, there are over 115 now if you count both police and Army battalions. And by the way, we help them develop police units. An environment like that is not one in which individual police can stand up to insurgents, much like the Italians had to developed the Carabinieri, for example, in Italy and, and protected justices to deal with uh, the mafia there in Iraq, the violent uh, insurgents, you have to do the same thing, get units, not just uh, personnel. We've dramatically changed the police training program. It started out as a lift from Kosovo. This is not Kosovo. This is not a 9-millimeter pistol world. This is an AK-47 world, sadly. It is a world in which hardening of police stations is critical. Entry control points are essential. 
operational constructs have to include radios, command and control systems that can link them to backup so that if they get challenged, that indeed someone will come to the rescue. And it's notable that since the elections in 30 January, from which the Iraqi security forces took an enormous lift and have not lost that since then, uh, there is not a case where Iraqi forces have backed down or crumbled or gone out the back door. They have taken some very tough casualties uh, in some tough fights, uh, but they haven't given up. NATO is helping, as I mentioned earlier. The NATO training mission in Iraq, albeit uh, relatively small, somewhere in the 125 to 150 personnel range, when you have that many people that are talented staff officers from a variety of different countries, they can be enormous multipliers of your effort. The latest such uh, endeavor is, in fact, the establishment of the reestablishment of the Iraqi staff colleges. The junior and senior staff colleges reopened on the 25th of September with, by the way, Iraqi instructors at the podium, which is something we sought, and we took an extra six or eight months to train them rather than to start with our instructors up in the front, and it paid big dividends. The equipment is really flowing. Again, I'll show you a slide on that in a second, but I would note NATO country donations as part of that. Hungary alone is giving 77 T-72 tanks. These are mainline battle tanks. The Iraqis went and looked at them and said, we never had anything as good as this under Saddam. That's two tank battalions worth of that, enormous cost avoidance. Uh, and our NATO allies, again, these others uh, all contributed about 20,000 weapons in the run-up to the elections in January, uh, and they continue to contribute. I talked about the enormous amount of construction that's ongoing over there. It is staggering in its uh, scope and magnitude. Uh, and uh, our engineers, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, the Air Force Center of Environmental Excellence, of which we're the biggest customer in the world by a factor of six, uh, all of them have done enormously good work using Iraqi contractors, Iraqi labor, uh, and generally Iraqi construction uh, techniques. Uh, I talked about the importance of transition teams, and we have expanded those over the course of the past eight months so that every single battalion, brigade, division headquarters has them. Uh, they're also now increasingly at province police headquarters and in some cases down below that into precinct stations as well. They're just starting to uh, join up with the border units. Uh, they're with the Navy, with their Air Force. By the way, their Air Force flies three C-130 aircraft, uh, U.S.-made uh, and, uh, again, is, is doing a good job there. This partnership plan has been very important. Every one of the Iraqi units has a partner unit in the coalition forces. Again, something lined up over the past eight months, and that, too, helps them as they try to get on their feet and then start to effectively uh, conduct counterinsurgency operations. And perhaps most important, but something somewhat intangible, is the fact that over the course, again, of the last year, uh, and recently consummated uh, with the Iraqis, we developed uh, with them uh, short, mid, and long-range plans for the way ahead. It talks about what will the force structure look like, and I'll show you a, a sand chart that we call it that shows you how big this will be as an example by 2007. Uh, for the training plans on how you get there, um, the institutional development piece, because the ministries are critically important. Tom Friedman just the other day rightly identified that we're act we have actually outpaced in some cases with battalions, brigades, divisions, the Navy, uh, the ability of the ministry to support them. And so there's a lot more uh, work going on in that regard, uh, the equipment that's needed. And, and the reason this is so critically important is if all you do is just churn out battalions and have a short-range uh, vision, you won't be where you want to be in the long range. If, just as to take the longest example, if you want an Iraqi 
officer to graduate from West Point five years from now, you have to start right now by sending him uh, to the Defense Language Institute, then four years at West Point, and then bring him back. And you can do these all along the uh, continuum uh, to lay out, and that type of thinking has gone on. And, in fact, there is an Iraqi officer at the Command and General Staff College. There's one starting the War College. They're all over the, the world, in fact, trying to take advantage of that. I might add a somewhat misperception as well is that Iraq is not taking advantage of international offers of trade on a tip or, uh, of training on a typical day. There are about 3,200 Iraqis out of the country at a variety, typically somewhere between 20 and 100 at NATO courses, uh, another 3,000 to 3,100 at a police academy in Jordan, and typically another 100 or so at a very demanding 13-week special operator training course that's run in a neighboring country and produces what are now uh, among the best special operators in that region. There is just absolutely undeniable progress, enormous progress, over the course of the last year. I don't care what metrics you want to use and take 30 percent off them, and it's still staggering what the Iraqis have accomplished. Having said that, there is enormous amount of work still to be done, and we should not make any mistake about that and be upfront about that. Uh, I am a qualified optimism, optimist. I'll talk about why that is at the end, but it comes back to what Secretary of State Rice talked about yesterday, what the Secretary of Defense and General Zabazade and Casey talked about on Capitol Hill the other day, and that is the key being Iraqi leaders uh, taking forward certain aspects of this, and I'll talk about that at the very end. Next slide. Just to give you some metrics, uh, this is the number of trained and equipped Iraqi forces that are in the field, that are actually serving, they're still alive, and they have their individual kit. It means they've gone through basic training in the, in the, in the uh, case of an infantryman. That's now 13 weeks, by the way. It's about the same as ours. The police training is extended from 8 to 10 weeks, and we'll continue to ramp that up. I'll show you the specialized training that's been added. But that's the number that's out there, and you can see re respectively where they are. Uh, the bulk of this number here is in the police, although there are very sizable. There's 27 battalions now of police commandos, uh, what are called uh, uh, public order battalions, and the police mechanized brigade. This is their version of the hostage rescue team, very highly trained, very capable, uh, larger, I believe, than the HRT, and uh, conducting operations on their own on almost a nightly basis in Baghdad. They are still judged, as you'll see later, as what's called a level two unit. They are not fully independent. One of the things they rely on, in addition to some logistical support, is we get them through our own checkpoints. Believe it or not, the most hazardous part of some of their operations is getting through the checkpoint to get into Baghdad International Airport, which is where their compound is. Our mentors do that for them, and then we say, have a nice night and a nice op, and we'll see you back at the checkpoint when you're done. Uh, highway patrol is coming online now. Border enforcement, critically important, needs more work uh, and is getting more uh, help and assistance as Iraq tries to establish much better control over the western border, in particular with Syria, uh, which is where certainly a number of the foreign fighters are coming in that are, that are the ones who are blowing themselves up and causing such horrific uh, casualties to civilians uh, in many cases. Uh, when you look at the Army, uh, this includes all the previous categories uh, of Army, National Guard, that are now part of the Army and doing very well. The regular Army, the Intervention Force, the Special Operations Unit now is over 1,500 strong. Uh, they have a special mission unit similar to the U.S. Army's special mission unit, except bigger, considerably bigger. They have a Ranger Battalion-like force. Uh, 
that our own ranger uh, here uh, I'll talk about later uh, would recognize as a, in a superb unit, and they too are conducting operations on just about a nightly basis. And now we are focusing increasingly on helping them build their logistical elements and, again, the institutional support mechanisms, including all the way at the ministry level, which is a task that was just given to my organizations at the, at the very end to, to help the Ministry of Interior and the Ministry of Defense at the top level uh, develop as well. It was being done uh, originally by another element. Uh, and they do have a small Air Force and actually a very capable Navy, but one that uh, whose progress has been undermined at times, again, by the bureaucracy above them in terms of supporting and another area that we have to keep working through. Next slide. This is how this has grown, actually. Uh, if you just take back to September and if we went all the way back to June, uh, of course, it would be even lower, but it has grown steadily all along. And again, this has a, a reasonable degree of rigor to it. It's not just people that walked across the stage. It's people that walked across the stage and are still out there. It is, for example, about 12,000 police less than were trained because of a variety of problems involving leakage, where they just don't get to their first unit, uh, casualties, which have been very uh, substantial with the police, uh, problems when the uh, police in uh, Anbar province and up in Nineveh crumbled back in the uh, fall period last year. Uh, but that's where we are right now. It should go up another uh, – in fact, I think there just was another police graduation yesterday with another 600 as an example. It will get close to 200,000 by the important mid-October uh, referendum for the Constitution, which I do believe will be passed for whatever that's worth. Uh, and then by the elections, there should be at least another 30,000 or so uh, that will be out there. By the way, that is substantially more, as you can see, uh, than were out there uh, back in January of 05, uh, when there were some 130,000 Iraqi security forces, not all of which counted here, by the way, because not all had been fully trained yet, but the secured 5,300 polling sites, several uh, instances of them giving their lives, smothering suicide uh, uh, bombers. Uh, next slide. I want to show a couple of slides that show, I think, fairly dramatically uh, what has happened in some areas. This is we're just taking a category called Army National Forces. You can't quite see that. This used to be a category that did not include the, reg the uh, Iraqi National Guard. They were incorporated later, so I want to compare apples and apples. Um, but as of last summer, for example, there were six battalions in training. There were none at that time uh, operational. Uh, and again, two ticks is a battalion, X is brigade, two is a division. So all you can see is battalions, and none of them were out there yet in the fight. Next slide. Uh, this is where we are now. Uh, you can see just in this category again, try not to get too hung up on the categories, uh, 37 battalions, uh, doesn't include special ops, doesn't include the Iraqi National Guard, again, that now are part of the Army. And you can see, by the way, they are all in the areas where the fighting is the heaviest right now, and they are very much uh, now complemented by uh, an additional 40-some-odd battalions just on the Army side from the former National Guard uh, that are also uh, in the fight uh, very, very much and played a huge role, for example, up in Talafer uh, most recently, where General Casey described the other day uh, getting a briefing or watching a briefing from the division chief of staff there to the Iraqi prime minister, and he realized that that division had not even existed uh, a year ago. When you think about how long does it take us to – it's taken us in some cases just a year to transform existing divisions that were already combat tested. Uh, what they have done in that period is pretty remarkable, uh, but again, still uh, very much a work in progress. Next slide. If we talk about police 
special police units. I talked about the importance of units, not just individual police. And, in fact, it is units that can stand up to uh, insurgents in such a violent uh, uh, environment. Uh, there were no police units. In fact, there were none as late as September of last year. Next slide. This is what's out there now. Uh, there's uh, in this, it's cut off here, but there are 27 battalions uh, just in the special police units alone. There are also additional border forces and now, as I mentioned, the emergency response unit. Again, you can see that they are all deployed uh, out in the areas where the fighting is the most. Uh, and I should point out that now out in this area here, uh, which is the Euphrates River Valley that goes out to the border with Syria uh, and is a notorious rat line for the foreign fighters coming in, the other being up in here that came through and used to use Talafer as a way station. Uh, there are now something like 16 Iraqi combat battalions, mostly Army but also police, and none of them are from Anbar province. They are not the homegrown ones that proved ineffective, frankly, in the past like the Fallujah Brigade. So a very substantial accomplishment here. Uh, over the course uh, of the past, really, in this case, uh, about the past year. Next slide. We've also greatly increased the rigor uh, of the assessment of readiness of the units. For a long time, the focus was on individual numbers. We all realized all along that that was not adequate. Uh, it was still a useful metric, but over time, we knew we had to focus on units, and so we came up with a readiness report that is very similar to the readiness report of our own U.S. Army. And it looks at personnel fill and qualification, the ability to command and control both hardware and software, their level of training and various mission essential tasks, uh, the ability to sustain themselves, and that's one of the real challenges still that we are helping them with, uh, their level of equipping and whether the equipment works, and then an intangible uh, leadership. And there is then an assessment that they are either fully independent. And let me point this out because there, is mis there are misconceptions about this. Fully independent doesn't just mean capable of independent operations. It means they don't need anything from the coalition. And it would be amazing uh, if there were any out there. And I will tell you, it's a classified number. It's a very, very small number. It was talked about on the Hill the other day as one, and that is correct. And it did, in fact, go down from three to one in one case because the battalion moved from a place where it was fully independent to an area where it needed coalition support. And in another case, I believe because of some personnel changes, uh, in the organization, which makes sense. They are still level two units, and that is really where we would like to see units right now because we believe that is very attainable. In the lead means that they can plan, execute, sustain the operations, and conduct them with some coalition support. There are, in fact, now over 36 of these over 115 battalions that are in the fight, over 36. Uh, police and Army combat battalions that are at level two or actually uh, uh, in level one, where there's, again, a very, very small number. This is very significant. Included in these, just to give you one example, are seven battalions in Baghdad that have their own area of operations where there are no coalition forces. They are still, though, at level two because they do need some assistance with logistics uh, uh, or combat multipliers, as they're called, indirect fire support or something like that. Uh, those units in Baghdad include the, the battalions that have cleaned up Haifa Street, which was called Purple Heart Boulevard as late as last fall, where our soldiers fought up and down that boulevard 
Uh, I walked that with the Iraq, one of the, two of the Iraqi battalions that have been on it about four months ago, and they own Haifa Street in a way that only Iraqi units can own someplace. They speak the dialect. They know the people. They can talk to them. They can obviously get intelligence sources in a way that we can never hope to, and on and on. You, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, again, another unit, as I mentioned, out on the airport road now from the police side uh, doing a similar type of mission. That's what we need. We need them in the lead so we can hand off. We recently handed off Karbala, uh, the city, of very, the second holiest city in Iraqi Shiadom. Uh, Najaf, the holiest city, was earlier handed off. Uh, again, those units are not level one down there, but they are capable of dealing with the security situation that is there, in part in those cities because there is much greater consent of the governed. There is a political environment that is supportive rather than a political environment uh, in which insurgents are at least tacitly uh, accepted and in some cases aided and abetted as in the Sunni Arab, the main four provinces where the problems are and then parts of two others. Worth reminding folks that 18 provinces in Iraq, of which 12 uh, are relatively quiet on a day-to-day -day basis. There is drama in the south, the, the nine provinces, and then the three uh, Iraqi Kurdish provinces that make up that 12. There certainly is drama. There is tension between various political parties, Sadr and the uh, Badr Corps or other elements. That is drama, though, that the Iraqis can deal with by and large, uh, whereas the, the, the drama, the, the threat, the serious violence in the Sunni Arab area is obviously something that they cannot deal with. Uh, then the, all the rest of those over 115 uh, battalions are in the fighting alongside doesn't mean they're not contributed. In many cases, they are still the first element at a checkpoint. They are sometimes in the lead on local operations, but they're doing it, say, a platoon with one of our platoons, a company with company, or something like that. They are not yet at the point uh, as a battalion where they are able to conduct uh, battalion operations with just some coalition support. And then the last category, there's a, a number of others that are still in the formation stages. They're still going through their uh, initial training and then their advanced training. Uh, and then there is also this projection here as General Casey and the planners try to scope out, given certain assumptions, what conditions could obtain in this area, say, in the spring or what have you, and will that, given those assumptions, allow the drawdown of U.S. forces or the shifting of them uh, or something like that. Next slide, please. This is really what I've been saying, uh, just to make sure everyone got it. Uh, they're in the fight, over 115 of them, again, most of them in this category, but over three dozen uh, that are in the, the uh, category that really allows them to get out front. Next slide. I just wanted to pop this up. There's a sense, I think, that all we're doing is training cops and infantrymen. Not at all so. We have started, uh, we started probably about a year ago with very substantial training in other areas, and you can see it now. We've got to help them rebuild the institutions. And they now have, as I mentioned, the military academy going. They just added another batch to that. It's based on the Sandhurst model, by the way. The Brits have taken the lead in helping with that. Um, we tried to get the West Point model, but the Brits were already ensconced there, and we're happy to have that. Um, I mean, you can see we're even helping them in contracting because, um, you know, if you don't get the contracts right, the soldiers might not get fed. So you can see all the different areas and I mentioned the Joint Staff College instructors already trained, and now, in fact, uh, there are, I believe it's about 80 students that just started on the 25th of September. This is a little bit dated here, and there are probably, a, all told, a couple hundred more uh, at the pace of this training. But you can see what we're doing, helping them rebuild their branch schools, and now more and more 
working on these logistical areas that are so critical to supporting the units that are in the field and keep making them able to operate overtime independently. On the police side, there's been a whole host of courses over here, everything from investigative skills, as you can see, a recent election security course that talks about how do you search people, how do you do force protection, how do you do entry control points, SWAT team training. Actually, this is, again, dated. We're up to 18 of 20 teams now uh, throughout the country that have had SWAT training, and they very much thicken the effectiveness of the province police in the areas to which they were. They've even now taken on the protection uh, with still some mentors and some Navy SEALs, but much reduced uh, of what are called their Tier 1 officials. That's the, the President, the Prime Minister, and the, uh, the three Vice Presidents, as well as former Prime Minister Alawi. But again, if you look at this list, you can see a pretty comprehensive approach to this. This is not all FBI Academy quality. Don't, don't let, let me mislead you, but it is very useful, and it is helping them reestablish the intellectual capital uh, that is needed in the policing area on that side. Next slide. Equipment. Staggering effort again. Just take a few here. Body armor, 216,000 sets of body armor delivered since the transition to sovereignty uh, back in June, late June of, uh, of last year. Um, gradually getting the radios out there to them that they need and helping them establish their command and control system. I mean, we've got satellite shots out there. We established a defense private cellular phone network that connects all their different bases. There are microwaves that connect them to the, the uh, Iraqi telephone system. There is a, an Internet system. I and mean, all of this is out there to give you, again, some sense of the comprehensive nature uh, of what we're engaged in. The amount of ammunition, over 330 million rounds. Some of this, by the way, again, bought by Iraqi money uh, from the Ministry of Defense in particular, some from the Ministry of Interior. Over time, getting the Kevlar helmets out there. They're still not where we want to be. It takes time to bring in enormous amounts of equipment. You literally have to fight the convoys through in many cases. They get attacked, but they've pressed on, and now increasingly they're being delivered by the, the three Iraqi motor transport regiments that have come online recently. These are heavy machine guns, by the way. Uh, you can see staggering number of AK-47s, their, their main rifle, and then the pistols. By the way, we, the reason we went with those instead of U.S. weapons, I mean, they would love to have U.S. weaponry, F-16s, probably Polaris submarines. They're just not ready for that yet now. Uh, and we have worked very hard, candidly, uh, to say, can you sustain it? Can you repair it? Can you maintain it? And, in fact, they know AK-47s. In fact, I stopped a class one time. Of all things, we had a U.S. MP sergeant teaching the Iraqis about the AK-47 uh, in a police course. And I stopped and said, you know, they're five minutes into this. How many of you can take apart and put together the AK-47 in under 45 seconds? And if you do it, I'll give you a coin. And every hand in the room went up. They proved it. Three of them, they got their coins. We stopped that class, and we went on to something more productive. Um, <laughs> This is the flexible, adaptable leadership style that I learned at the Woodrow Wilson School. Uh, next slide, please. So what do we need to do in the future? Well, here it is, and it's a daunting list of tasks, uh, but it is continuing now rather than starting, if you will. I mean, it's very much continuing to build capacity and, and capability at the ministries, vitally important, as I talked uh, earlier, in a host of different areas. They've got to get policies out there, a huge success. I mean, it doesn't seem like much, but we got, I think it was 12 admin policies through. It only took us five months. You think, admin policies, how does that help you fight the enemy? Well, if you don't have admin policies that 
govern how sergeants are, are promoted, how officers are commissioned, how commanders are selected. It will all be on tribal bases, parties, ethnic groups, or what have you. So that type of thing is critically important. Um, the Iraqi funding shortfall is facing them right now. They're grappling with that. They're figuring out how to do it. This is not, by the way, a country, though, that, that is a donor economy by any stretch of the imagination. They're making over $500 million a week out of oil profits, and they are using it. The challenge is, again, building the capacity at these ministries because this is the ultimate command economy, which I learned from Bob Willig, uh, and every bit of resources of, of the resources in that country goes through the ministries uh, out to the provinces, and, and that's the way they're distributed. Um, keep training, of course, keep generating additional forces, but now shifting emphasis uh, while still building additional combat elements to complete the 10-division army that, that is the design, and I think we're about four brigades from completing that uh, get to get them in the field. Uh, but develop logistical units now, as I mentioned, a depot system, warehousing, and all of the other uh, enablers from transportation, maintenance, supply, and, uh, and so forth. Additional emphasis on leaders. I'll keep coming back to leaders because, again, eventually the ultimate success is Iraqi leaders and not just in the security forces, but at every level. Uh, and then we've got to get a better control on the border. General Casey highlighted this in his talk on Capitol Hill the other day. Uh, and he reemphasized it in a press conference yesterday. We've got to disrupt initially and then really reduce the number of foreign fighters coming in. Uh, it's one reason you just can't hunker down and say protect Baghdad uh, and then let them continue to, to, to flow around and establish another Fallujah or what have you. By the way, the other reason you can't do that is because, in fact, just protecting Baghdad does you no good. This is not an agrarian society where you can pull up the the, uh, the bridge at night and everybody be happy. If you aren't also securing the roads on which all the food comes into this city of 7 million, sort of like guarding the entire L.A. basin, uh, take out the, the skyscrapers, uh, if you don't do that, if you don't protect the electrical lines, the oil pipelines, uh, the water feeds, and all the rest of that, again, you are not going to be able to provide for the basic needs of the people, which, in fact, again, need to be improved as well. Uh, infrastructure repair will continue. I mentioned enormous progress in this regard over the course of the last 15 months, but that will continue uh, along with more construction to, to build out, if you will, uh, all of the, uh, the infrastructure buildings, training centers, uh, and so forth that they need. We've already transitioned about six or seven bases to Iraqi control. We'll continue that. I mentioned that certain areas have been transitioned as well. Uh, continue to buy equipment. By the way, we are now about to let a large contract for a division's worth at three brigades, nine battalions, uh, 750 folks in a battalion. Uh, that's of wheeled armored personnel carriers. These are not just Humvees. They are larger wheeled armored vehicles with a sort of a boat shape uh, that will be very, very helpful to them even after they build their tracked uh, uh, armored division uh, and, and replace the vehicles in their police mechanized unit with the Cadillac gauge armored security vehicles that we're already purchasing, about 62 of those uh, are coming in. That's been stalled a bit because they're made down in, uh, in the New Orleans area, but actually we got an email the day after Hurricane Katrina saying we're going to get it back up and get going for you. Uh, then expanding the transition team program as the additional battalions come on, we will bring on additional transition teams uh, and continuing the partnership effort. And then finally, just continue to refine these. We now have them. No plan uh, is ever final. You continue to refine it, and that is certainly the case there. Finally, ultimate success 
will equate to Iraqi leadership. It is Iraqi leaders at the national level, as uh, Secretary of State Rice mentioned yesterday, holding the country together, reaching out to those who feel that they may be left out, uh, getting as many Iraqis as possible, feel they have a stake in the success of the new Iraq, uh, and, and, and again, uh, cooperating and, and giving a little to ensure that the country stays together and progresses. Uh, it is leaders at the province level resisting the temptation of winner-take-all politics, of politicizing the local security forces, the police chiefs, and so forth. And I might add the Minister of Interior, though he was from the Badr Corps originally, resisted the desire of, for example, the governor of uh, Wasit province to put a police chief in Kut who was from Badr Corps. In fact, he went to Hakim, for those of you who know the senior leader on the Shia side, on the Shia ticket, uh, and said, do you want me to be a success Ayatollah? And he said, yes. He said, then don't make me put this guy in there. And he did not. Uh, so they are standing up for that. It is leaders uh, in the ministries helping to develop this all-important capacity and capability that I mentioned so that, in fact, we can transition more and more and more to them and we can draw back out of the logistics, out of the command and control, out of the intelligence, uh, and all the other so-called battlefield multipliers that are important to enabling uh, infantry units and sustaining them. And then finally, it is, of course, leaders in the security forces themselves, leading all Iraqis, resisting the temptations of, of tribal or political uh, pressures, uh, making sure, in fact, that the policies that work for, for, again, all different factions uh, in the armed forces and providing courageous, uh, honest, and uh, competent leadership uh, to their soldiers and to their police. Next slide. Uh, I don't know if you can see this or not, but this is uh, the Frederick Remington print titled The Stampede. I used to try to describe as a metaphor to the, uh, to the staff of the Multinational uh, Security Transition Command, I said, look, this is a cattle drive, and what we've got to do, I don't know if you want to call the cattle the missions, the tasks, what have you, but we've got to get them moving, and then we've got to build momentum, and then we've got to keep them going. And I said, look, this is going to be a little bit, sometimes it's not going to be the prettiest sight we just got to get it out there and get going. Some cattle will get ahead of us. If they're important, we'll catch up with them. Some will fall behind. If they're important, we'll go back and get them. If not, we're just going to keep moving. Some will turn left or right. Some will fall asleep. Sadly, some are going to get killed. There's bad guys out there in this cattle drive. It's the most rugged terrain you can imagine. You can see it's raining. There's lightning bolts. And, oh, by the way, we're the outriders out here. Now, they said, uh, well, General, you might call it a cattle drive, but we call it a stampede. And, uh, and they actually gave me this print right here. And so we started giving this as a, go, as a uh, going away present for a lot of the staff officers. And we put on there, you know, to one of the great outriders in the Mesopotamian stampede. Uh, I will tell you that, that this effort has now considerable, enormous momentum. Uh, but there are still enormous risks out there. It is still very rugged terrain. It's still rain inside. There's still lightning bolts. There's still seriously bad guys out there trying to blow our soldiers up, the Iraqi security forces, and even, uh, sadly and tragically, uh, innocent civilians lining up school teachers, you name it, uh, this is a very, very uh, evil enemy. Uh, we don't know what ideology they represent, by the way. And, and in fact, uh, as the Secretary of Defense mentioned the other day, there are many, many signs of the people just having had enough. You have not seen in a long time any Iraqi out there dancing next to a blown-up Humvee or anything else. Uh, they, too, want peace. They, too, want to, to move forward with their lives. And, of course, that's what we've been trying to do. Well, before closing and opening the floor to questions, I feel one last obligation, and that is to those with whom I was privileged to soldier over the last two and a half years. 
offer one final thought, and it is that regardless of one's views on Iraq, I strongly believe that all Americans should be grateful for what their young soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines have done and are doing for their country. There have been, to be sure, missteps by some troopers and units along the way, some very serious. But for each trooper who failed to live up to the standards expected of our soldiers, there have been hundreds, indeed thousands of others, like Professor Professor Uwe Reinhardt's son, who served two tours with the Marines in Iraq and a tour in Afghanistan that was cut short when he was wounded. The three outstanding captains, uh, Gene Hull being one of them, currently enrolled in the first-year graduate program who did such magnificent work with the 101st Airborne Division in Iraq. Matt Schur, back there, uh, a Woodrow Wilson School undergraduate major in the class of 2001, with whom I was privileged to run with, along with the ROTC detachment back uh, in 2000, I think, but who served in both Iraq and Afghanistan uh, with the 2nd Ranger Battalion, uh, made it home safely, and is now at some small, insignificant business school up there at some school in, uh, in Cambridge, I think, <laughs> and rooting for the Red Sox, um, and countless others, uh, each of whom have quietly gone about their mission, doing what our country asked them to do, enduring separation from loved ones, soldiering in crushing heat and sandstorms and high altitude, battling a truly barbaric enemy, grappling with the complexities and frustrations of working in cultures that are very different from our own, and in some cases sh shedding blood or even giving the last full measure of devotion in carrying out their assigned missions. Tom Brokaw, who you'll recall wrote the greatest about those who fought in World War II, spent some time with the 101st Airborne Division when we were deployed in northern Iraq. Before getting on a helicopter after a particularly good day, seeing the myriad tasks in which our troopers were engaged, he turned to me and said, surely these soldiers are the new greatest generation. I agreed with him then, and I still do. Repeatedly in Iraq and more recently in Afghanistan and on the way home, I saw the concept of the Army of One slogan played out as soldier after soldier, Marine after Marine, proved to be the decisive individual in the performance of a particular task at a particular place and a particular time in the battlefield. Each has been what the salutatorian in the class of 2005 recently wrote in the Princeton Alumni Weekly that he hoped to be in enlisting in the Army, a worthy ambassador of his nation. In fact, I often wondered, especially while observing soldiers rendering a final salute to a fallen comrade after a memorial ceremony, where does our country find such individuals, men and women who, despite the personal flaws that we all have, serve so selflessly and in the face of enormous challenges, repeatedly demonstrate impressive initiative, determination, innovativeness, and courage. I raise this today because as the discussion over Iraq continues, it's my hope that our country will never turn its back on those in uniform who have done what their country asked them to do. Our young men and women in Iraq and Afghanistan and elsewhere around the world are very much living Princeton's motto, in the nation's service, and I hope that our country will never forget that. Thank you very much.
the woman who I can never say no to has told me we have 15 minutes, and so I would be happy to take questions. Yes, sir. General Bud Booth, class of 54. One of the more controversial activities right after the invasion was the disbanding of the Iraqi army. Uh, I don't want to put you on the spot as to whether that, that was a good or a bad decision. Surely the people that did this must have had some reasons why they did it. And I wonder what we could take out of this whole episode when, as and if we get into another uh, situation like that, such as the not-so-unrealistic hypothetical we discussed in this room yesterday afternoon. Uh, it's a good question. Um, and, in fact, Walt Slocum, who is a Woodrow Wilson School undergraduate major, in fact, um, was advising Ambassador Burma at that time, and I talked to him about that subsequent to that, in fact, uh, um, very earnestly about five weeks after it. Um, I actually think I, I do not necessarily accept the idea that uh, that has almost become fashionable that, you know, we should not have disbanded the Iraqi army. I think there are ways that could have been done. I, I don't think Iraq needed that army. It was uh, bloated with general officers. There were 1,100 generals in Nineveh province alone, I might add, by the way, each one of whom wanted to offer me personal and private advice. Um, it was an army. <laughs> it was an army that hadn't fought. I mean, it had disintegrated. Uh, it had put some elements had fought. So again, I, I think that that probably what was behind it. I think again, Walt would probably be uh, a better expert on that. There clearly were second and third order effects from that. Um, it, I think, he recognized uh, pretty quickly, in fact, that. Uh, after about five weeks, there had to be an announcement uh, about the stipends, that they couldn't just be uh, out on the food lines, if you will, and that there had to be an announcement about the Army in the future. And probably, I think, the, the big question would be to ask him about the timing of all that and whether that could have been compressed um, and, and whether, in fact, there were other alternatives uh, at that time. Yes, sir. Uh, Javed Khan, class of uh, 77, Woodrow Wilson School. Uh, Prince Sultan Bandar, the ex-ambassador of Saudi Arabia to U.S., once said, please do not confuse me with your facts. Given that, General, I would like a very honest assessment and answer from you because you are at Princeton and not at the Capitol Hill. <laughs> Given the scope, size, and intensity of the insurgent activity, what is your assessment that Iraqi plus coalition forces in what time period would one day will be able to stand in a secure environment and we would be able yep. to say task or mission well accomplished? Yep. Thank you. Um, I, I think the way to answer that actually is, frankly, to first of all lay out the timetable that's ahead to point out some aspects of that, because they have obviously enormous implications for this whole effort. Uh, and then just to, if you will, posit some assumptions and some other things the way General Casey has, uh, has discussed recently on Capitol Hill, because it is actually uh, it is the, the, the right answer. Um, first of all, of course, there, the insurgents clearly are going to come after Iraq for the course of the mid-October referendum, the constitutional referendum. Remember that to defeat that, by the way, the Sunni Arabs have been registering to vote big time, and that is very reassuring, uh, because in my view, the real objective should be to get as many seats as they can in the parliament uh, in uh, the elections in mid-December, in which case they could truly be participants 
uh, in a very meaningful way, and there could be other alternatives uh, in terms of alignments and so forth. But the, the referendum, I do think, will pass. I think everybody has stated out, out in the open that, uh, you know, they might be able to defeat it. In, they have to get two-thirds of the vote in three provinces. They might get Anbar province. They, they probably will. They might get Saladin, which has Tikrit in it, but I don't think they'll get another. The idea that they would get Nineveh, I mean, I was in Nineveh, the, uh, the commander in that area, and, and I know the demographics, and I don't think they can get two-thirds of the vote up there. Um, so that will pass, but again, it will be a turbulent period. Uh, there will be, you know, effects of that. That will continue. Then there will be the electioning, uh, electioneering, if you will, the, the campaign that will lead to the uh, mid-December elections for the new assembly. Then there will be some uh, uh, work as they establish the government. I think it was, it's instructive somewhat to remember from 30 January until they had they established the new government. This also, by the way, will be the fourth government in about 18 months, roughly, if you start with Say there was a government in place uh, prior to transition to sovereignty uh, at the end of June. The government led by Prime Minister Lowy, the new government led by, uh, uh, by the new Prime Minister, and then there will be another one again probably early next year. Um, there will be, again, uh, some degree of, uh, of, of turbulence uh, associated with that. There will need to be a good effort right after that, certainly, and there's already plans for that, as you would imagine, to try to build as much of the civil service that will carry them through that so that the ministries will not lose the capacity and the capability. And Secretary of Defense mentioned the other day, you know, sort of the if of if they then go into that and they don't do a wholesale firing, which we don't think, uh, I, I would not think they would do. Um, in the meantime, the Iraqi security forces will have continued to develop. Uh, you saw in the sand chart it just continues a pretty steady climb. But more important than that is the units will be continuing to uh, improve in readiness in their experience. The equipping piece will continue to enable them better and better so they gradually get out of pickup trucks, some of them, and into wheel armored vehicles in the threatened areas. The mechanized forces are there, the Cadillac gauge ASVs and all the rest of that. Uh, in the meantime, our transition teams will be, have been with them. The Western strategy that is being pursued right now to shut down or at least, again, disrupt these routes in with the foreign fighters uh, is particularly critical over the course of the next few months in addition to this political process that's, that's ongoing. And so, as General Casey has said, if you have all of these, then it, it is, you can entertain the concept that in the mid-spring uh, there could be there, – there could be. Again, please, if there's reporters in here, to, to actually just quote him. Uh, as he has as, – <laughs> as General Casey has said – uh, if conditions permit, and he's laid out the conditions. Now, let me point out some other things, by the way, because it is more than just Iraqi security forces. Uh, they are critically important to this, but they operate in a political environment that's critically important in determining, again, whether people are supporting, aiding and abetting, or turning against the insurgents. And in the southern part of the country, the reason that Iraqi security forces are the face of security down there, despite the drama that plays out, again, between these Shia political parties uh, is because the people do support basically the, the governments and their security forces, and therefore they're capable. Uh, if you go to Afghanistan, uh, frankly, you can see security forces uh, that, that can operate pretty well, even though they have not had some of the advantages in the resource, in terms of the resources that we have had in Iraq, but because there is a much more permissive uh, environment in many of the areas there. In fact, NATO forces are in many of those areas, and they're doing fine. 
So, again, that's what, what you would see out there. The political environment, very, very important. There are other issues. The economic piece of this, again, I've got to bring in this interdisciplinary approach to that test question. But um, the economic piece is vitally important. If you can start to reduce unemployment, you reduce also the amount of guns for hire. Make no mistake about it. Many of the people planting the improvised explosive devices are people that are flat, uh, out of work, um, out of luck, and they're willing in some cases, and they're also somewhat disposed to being able to do that, uh, and they have a little bit of training. They're willing to plant an improvised explosive to blow up Iraqi security forces, our forces, or even in some cases uh, innocent civilians. So, again, there's an economic piece to that. There's a political piece to that. There's a basic services piece to that. And there's been enormous work to reestablish the electrical grid, the oil infrastructure, uh, the rail network, and all the rest of that, not helped by the insurgents repeatedly attacking it. And, in fact, the Iraqis have shown enormous resilience, by the way, in the face of all of that stuff, going out time after time to reestablish towers that have been knocked down, to patch the pipeline, to run the routes even though they're getting attacked on them, et cetera. But that's sort of a timeline that you can lay out. And again, all of that's been said by General Casey, and it is correct, and, and that's what you have to look to. But it is all conditions. It's all about what assumptions you make about the future. And again, a lot of it is about Iraqi leaders uh, uh, taking those actions that I mentioned toward the end that are so very, very critical uh, to all that. Yes, sir. Uh, Tom Gilbert, uh, Woodrow Wilson School, uh, 66. First of all, congratulations on the uh, great job that you all are doing, uh, General and Captain, uh, with the limited resources that have been made available to you. I've got um, two questions. Uh, the first question is on uh, logistics and procurement. The second question is on marketing and PR information. Uh, just looking at one of your charts, uh, there's 750,000 uniforms. Uh, about 148,000 AK-7s. You've got, AK, you've got uh, uh, a very a big shortage of helmets and very few armored vehicles. What uh, can you do more, uh, either nationally or on a global basis, to expedite the procurement of the helmets, the, uh, the armory, and the uh, mechanized vehicles to uh, uh, ensure the safety and the more effectiveness of the uh, troops? Or the second question. Can, can uh, I answer that one first? I'm sure. never any good at remembering the first one yeah, after sure. the second one. Uh, the, the answer to the first question, firstly, it's a staggering number of stuff that's been brought in, and it's almost as fast as we can literally transport it in on the roads, in the air, and everything else. By the way, we buy the, the vast majority of the uniforms now from what's called the Defense Logistics Agency uh, directly under an indefinite uh, demand, indefinite quantity contract because it is the most reliable, proven quality uh, deliver where we want it. Uh, General Odom can tell you all about them. Uh, and they have worked very, very well for us. Um, in the other areas, sometimes it is just sheer production. I mean, we're buying the armored security vehicles as fast as Cadillac Gage can produce them. We are, by the way, we've ordered up armored Humvees as well. We're also in competition. We would, by the way, like to buy American when we can, where we can, where it makes sense for the Iraqis and their ability to sustain them uh, as well. Uh, again, it is a sheer capacity issue, and I, I've, I've used that term capability and capacity a number of times. It, it affects much, much more than just what, we're, what they're doing. Let me point out one other thing, by the way. The resources devoted to this have actually been considerable. 
Uh, it's the one time in my life where we actually submitted a request, laid out a spending plan, and the U.S. Congress not only gave us the amount of money we asked for in the supplemental, this latest supplemental, $5.7 billion, uh, they also gave it to us in relatively unrestricted they, they cut it all down to just two programmatic categories at our request, and then another category that was called quick reaction or quick response fund that we could spend in either area. Uh, again, and uh, so they gave us what we wanted. Uh, in fact, Senator Kerry was there recently. Said, "Gosh, don't you need more money?" The Minister of Defense said he needed more. Well, of course he said he needed more. I mean, what Minister of Defense ever didn't say that? But let me show you the spending plan. Let me. There's another whole briefing on that. We're on it. We, we're doing it about as quickly, again, as everyone can digest it. We don't just want to go out there and get stuff that then there's no infrastructure to support. Some of this, candidly, just takes time. And, in fact, he asked me repeatedly, what's the missing ingredient? And I said, Senator, it's time. And you can, you can go just so fast with some of this. Uh, you can accelerate to a certain point, but then you just got to keep your shoulder to the wheel and keep on pushing. Next question. Uh, the second Sorry. question, and, and thanks for giving me the chance to do that, is uh, marketing and uh, PR information. Um, uh, you're, you're demonstrating some wonderful metrics there on a quarter-to-quarter, -quarter, on a year-to-year -year basis, but it looks like we're losing the, uh, the media war, the PR war, to the enemy in terms of the stories that we yeah. hear are essentially yep. only about 45 people killed, et cetera. Yep. Um, what are you doing in terms of uh, kind of marketing PR information and taking the information you provided us uh, dumbing it down to some very basic metrics and then providing a steady flow of improving quarter by quarter, year by year uh, statistics and metrics that show yep. we've now built a number more schools, yep. et cetera, et cetera. Yep. First of all, by the way, let me tell you, there are metrics uh, literally out the gazoo. I mean, Jim Trussell, who was here earlier, would be very proud of the numbers that our operations research and systems analysis folks are producing. The challenge is, candidly, it's overwhelming. I brought all kinds of reporters in and briefed them on the scope and the complexity and the magnitude of what we're doing. And it is so broad and so vast, perhaps we are trying to do too much. I mean, maybe you are putting your finger on something, just dumb it down, just be satisfied with this, because the truth is what comes out of it always is one soundbite. It's, well, there's a new reporting system and it went from three to one. Well, what about the other 37? What about the, you know, the other facet that is very challenging to us candidly is that it is on many days impossible to break through the drumbeat of sensational attacks that takes place in Baghdad or around the country. There's, again, phenomenal stuff going on out there. The Iraqi Staff College opened, just to give you an example. The Secretary General of NATO was there, the Supreme Allied Commander, this, the, the Prime Minister of Iraq, Prime Minister Joffrey, all the other notables, and it did not get any coverage at all and I don't even remember what it was that competed with it that day. And there's sometimes a difficulty of just breaking through the fact that there was another car bomb that went off that day, which is hugely significant, uh, sometimes even in a strategic sense, but still drowns out all the other activity over. I mean, it's a common uh, express. I can never say no to our dean. I'm going to ask the last question. And after all the wonderful things whoops, you said uh, about uh, the Woodrow Wilson School, I hope this will not seem an ungrateful question, and it's a difficult one for you to answer. Uh, I understand that it's a difficult question for you to answer, but I think it has to be asked. I think it's on the minds of many of us. Uh, and I ask this question precisely out of admiration uh, and uh, respect for the fine young men and women you work with. 
in many parts of the Middle East and in many parts of the world, the symbol of the United States uh, is all too often one of the pictures from Abu Ghraib. Yep. Yep. It is the opposite of what we stand for, and it demeans, above all, uh, the men and women in the armed services who are so most closely identified uh, with those atrocities. What can we do going forward to acknowledge what we have to acknowledge, but also to restore uh, the values that we stand for in others' eyes? That it's sort of a, that's a discrete question in a sense. I mean, there's literally been an enormous effort in the detainee operations piece, and I will tell you that that has been a huge endeavor uh, over the course of really the last couple of years, frankly, from the point that we ended up. I mean, as a division commander, all of a sudden we're confronted. We, you don't have a detainee uh, cell necessarily. It's always out of hide. You've always, you know, in exercises that are typically two weeks long, you don't exercise that kind of very robust uh, activity that is required to do that. And I'll tell you what we learned. You know, originally I was going to give you ten lessons learned, actually, and I changed it because I saw on Capitol Hill, hey, folks, just still don't understand what's going on with Iraqi security forces. One of the lessons that I was going to talk about is that the, the most important job of a commander or a leader, by the way, including in the Woodrow Wilson School or Princeton University, is the setting of a tone. Uh, that sounds very simplistic. You know, obviously you want to set a tone. Well, let me tell you, in combat, setting the right tone is hugely, critically important. If you set a tone as a commander that we are looking for a fight, you will find it. And your soldiers will amplify that, and they will find many fights in a place like Iraq. But they may miss the opportunity for reconciliation or peace or whatever it might be. Um, if, again, you wink at or if you tacitly accept or look the other way when something uh, uh, wrong is going on, then, again, it, it may be perpetuated, unless there are terrific leaders at a, at a lower level uh, who take action to correct that. So I think we have gone back and looked very, very hard at that. I think that uh, we have looked at what kind of tone do we have to set. I can tell you we had one relatively minor, certainly compared to any of these cases in 101st, and my lawyer came in. I had 29 operational lawyers. It's another lesson learned, by the way. All the lawyers out there, we love you. Send them to the Army. Um, they are hugely important. They have the same qualities that a Woodrow Wilson School graduate has in terms of critical thinking, work ethic, ability to con concisely uh, provide a recommendation and promulgating instructions, deals, whatever. Uh, my lawyer and I sat down and said, okay, what are the rules? Let's get the rules out, and then, oh, by the way, I want the Red Cross in our detention facilities as soon as we can get them in there. And then let's get the woman from the province council who has been vocal in her criticism. Let's get the, the imam in there. By the way, the imam came in at all things. He said, General, you, you've got a huge problem in your detention facility. I said, what is that? And he said, you don't have any clocks in there. I said, well, you know, what do you need clocks in a detention facility? He said, well, they have to know when to pray. We put clocks in the f detention facilities. So, again, I think this is all about cultural sensitivity. It's all about the tone that we set from the very, you know, top of organizations on down. It's frankly the same thing you wrestle with, with what tone do I want to set for the Woodrow Wilson School or Princeton University, except arguably it is magnified enormously because of the importance of what these actions are in a combat environment. 
So, I mean, I, all I can say is that we have taken them to heart enormously. We've addressed them doctrinally. We've addressed them now in training. We've trained units and prepared them for these tasks. Uh, we take people through Abu Ghraib all the time, by the way, now, including the Red Cross, including reporters, and you name it. Uh, and that has, uh, you know, we learned some extraordinarily hard lessons there. And I think that we are trying to uh, uh, honestly and, and, and legitimately and so forth to move ahead and, and to act on those lessons. The greater issue I think we're also coming to grips with is, you know, how do we portray uh, what we believe uh, sincerely is a desire to help? Um, you know, it is about helping. It's not doing. It is about um, how do you show that? And, uh, and again, very challenging uh, because the other side in particular, by the way, is enormously skilled at using information operations. In Fallujah, there were two broadcasting studios, by the way, in addition to the car bomb manufacturing factories, the improvised explosive factories, the havens for foreign fighters coming in, suicide bombers, and all the rest of that. Believe it or not, two broadcast. We captured one time uh, a very, 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 very senior uh, terrorist thumb drive, believe it or not. Missed him, got the thumb drive, got the wrong vehicle. But that kind goodness me, I mean, these guys are very sophisticated. And again, we, that's what Karen Hughes, I assume, is, you know, why she came back in government and what she is doing and going out and about in that area. And uh, so that's what we're after. And Dean, thank you again. Thank all of you again for your attention. Yeah.